So long, 2021. This is the final Pocono Mountains podcast till next year. I'm Jim Hamill. We've had roughly 40 episodes this year, 40 chances to take a deep dive on the history, the people, and the amazing aspects of the Poconos in any season. Last week, episode 37 brought us a behind-the-scenes chat with Brianna Strunk and Tom Gregory, who bring us many of the stories you see on PTN or here, here on Pocono Mountains Podcast. Way back in episodes one through four, we even learned all about Jim Thorpe, Milford, Honesdale, and Stroudsburg. And ever since those episodes, we've found out a lot about what makes the Poconos a top destination for millions each year and a wonderful place to call home. We'll share the best of 2021 segments in just a bit. The Poconos is a year-round destination for millions, and with 2,400 square miles of mountains, forests, lakes, and rivers, with historic downtowns and iconic family resorts, it's the perfect getaway for a weekend or an entire week. You can always find out more at PoconoMountains.com or watch Pocono Television Network streaming live 24-7. PTN can be found at PoconoTelevision.com. Thanks for listening. We'll have a new episode each week highlighting lots of the fun things you can experience while you're visiting the Poconos. Subscribe and leave a review and or comment on whatever platform you listen. Back to the episode now and back to the beginning of our podcast when in episode six, the past and the future collided with current president and CEO of the Pocono Mountains Visitors Bureau, Chris Barrett, talking with longtime former president and CEO, Bob Ugasini or Mr. You. Then we'll listen to one of the most listened to episodes of the podcast, episode 29, when I sat down with Willy Wonka's of the Poconos, the fine folks at Mocha Origins. Enjoy. Hi everyone, welcome to this inaugural edition of Pocono Perspectives. This show is something that we've kind of been thinking about for a long time, to talk a little bit more about how we happen to be here in the Pocono Mountains and all the things that have happened, believe it or not, over a few centuries. You can't start this without uh, talking to the individual right here that's to my left, Bob Ugasini. Uh, Bob was with the uh, Pocono Mountains Visitors Bureau for a number of years, and he's going to talk to us a little about the history of the Poconos. So, Bob, um, tell us a little bit about the Pocono Mountains Visitors Bureau. How did, it, how did this all start? Well, thank you for having me too, great. Chris. It's uh, good to be here. Uh, actually, it, it is an interesting story how, uh, how they evolved as an organization. Uh, my research when I was there for 40 years was that the Bureau, in one form or another, started about 1903 uh, as a resort association. And then there was the Western Poconos, the Eastern Poconos, the Lake Region of the Poconos, the top of the Poconos, there was all these little resort associations. And what they had was, they all had their own brochures, they all had a little vi visitor center, and their brochures would end at, at the other parts uh, line. So it was almost like, you know, the, ma the maps that show the world ended, you know, at that one, one side. So if you stopped at an information booth in Eastern Poconos, they wouldn't tell you where Mount Pocono was. And what happened was, the leadership in the industry, the, the private sector, they started realizing that the inquiries they were getting, were, were the, they belonged to more than one of these organizations, were the same. They took little ads in the New York Daily News and the Philadelphia Inquirer, and they started realizing there was a duplicative of, of effort. 
So they had this big meeting with all the groups and the, and the uh, and they said, hey, this is crazy. We're wasting our money. Now, we're talking about in the 50s. And they formed the Pocono Mountain uh, Vacation Bureau at that time. So how did it come down to the four counties, the Carbon, Monroe, Wayne, Well, it did start that way. I mean, really, we had members in those counties. And then uh, when the state d d determined that there would be a tourist promotion agency in each county is when we, then we incorporated the four counties. Because, you know, with Carbon County, for example, in Pike and Wayne, and we had a lot of members, but they weren't necessarily all throughout the county. But you couldn't just take a county as a tourist story and just say, we just want part of the county. But they had like 17 meetings in 17 days, they said, until they formed the, the Pocono Mountain Visitor. Now, the little organizations kept uh, staying in place, but they just had annual dinners and banquets, and then that started to just completely dissolve. So that's how the Bureau, and I think it's, it was a very innovative thing. We were probably one of the first regional tourist organizations in the country, if not the most regional organization. So back then, do you remember how many members started that first year in the 50s? I would say there was less than 50, 60 members, maybe 70 members. And, uh, but they were like, they were innovative people like Harry Kiesendahl and the Honorts and George Kolovas and Paul, these are old, old people. And they, and they, they were the kind of people who thought like this. They thought more regionally, thought bigger. And, and they could see, the concept here is very simple. What's good for the Pocono Mountains is good for our business. And if you believe that, and they made people believe that because it was true, then it was easy to fold everybody inside of that banner. So I have to ask you, we, we talked before this a little bit, and you told me a little bit about the Delaware Water Gap and the Poconos and the naming. That's fascinating. How did that all happen? Well, as you know, you probably can hear more about this. Delaware Water Gap was the resort area of Monroe County in the area. Uh, they were historic resort area, really. And at one point in time, there was a debate whether the Monroe County area would be called the Pocono Mountains or the Delaware Water Gap area because the concentration of resorts, big resorts, and facilities was in the Delaware Water Gap. The trains would come up and the barges would come up, and it was a very famous resort area. Teddy Roosevelt went there, Fred Astaire was there, others, these are all you know, old people, and the older people would remember. And so that, that was an interesting debate back in those days. But I think it was the fact that there was actually a mountain or range called the Pocono Mountains that really determined the area. And Pocono is a Native American name. Pocono is an Indian name, meaning stream between mountains. And it really uh, came from the, uh, the Delaware River going through the Delaware Water Gap. So when mountains was added, um, I guess this, uh, somebody who doesn't really understand branding or understand what that means, how, how did you first decide to market the brand and then add mountains to it? Well, what we found was that Poconos as a name was probably more popular even today than Pocono Mountains. But the fact that people didn't know what that meant. You know, we had some research done when I was there and they said, what does that mean? And they just thought it was a made up name uh, and they didn't realize that it was really a mountain range and it was really mountains. And so the branding we try to uh, instill was that this is not just a, a made up name. This actually is a geographic area called the Pocono Mountains. 
And that's why we try to emphasize the word Pocono Mountains versus Poconos, because Poconos became a symbol really more of the uh, of some of the resorts, the honeymoon resorts in particular, and it, it, it had some negativity at the end of their era. So that's one of the things I wanted to talk about too. How did, how did we evolve to the honeymoon capital of the world? How did that start? The Pocono Mountains is the birthplace of the unique setting known as the Honeymoon Resort, where the honeymoon is not just a holiday, but the most splendid and special time of your lives together. The Poconos are now recognized as the honeymoon mecca of the world. Yes, the whole wide world. Well, this is an interesting story, and I'd get a little emotional about it because I'm a veteran like you are. After World War II, Johnny came marching home to New York City. And when the veterans came to New York City on boats coming back from the war, they wanted to get married. I mean, their, their girlfriends were waiting at the pier. So there was a huge uh, growth in marriages. And so we, we, the, the leadership in that time said, look at try to take advantage of this. So the honeymoon business in the Pocono Mountains really started with that, that influx, that tremendous surge of marriages from the, from the boys coming back from overseas after World War II. So how did, um, who were the leaders at that time? Who were the thought leaders? That, was it the Kiesendahls, was it? Well, it was Kiesendahl, it was the Honorts, it was uh, uh, Ed Strickland, some of the Mount Airy people. Uh, many of the people are gone now. George Kolovis, Paul Azure. Uh, there was a lot of lot of the early leaders, and uh, but but I don't think people realize that. What I mean, I I think the marriage rate after, immediately after World War II doubled. Well, you know, there were so many young guys overseas, right. and the minute they came back, they wanted to get married. Right. So there was a huge market there, a huge market, and. Uh, so that's how that started, and it was a place called Farm on a Hill, there in uh, in, in Monroe County that specialized in uh, uh, couples only, honeymoon couples only. And a good story about that is they actually they they used to have the couples, believe it or not, do the dishes, do their own cooking because they were training them wow. to be a <laughs> to be a married couple. And I thought, wow, what a, what a way to get free labor here, you know the. Everybody had to do their own, uh, make their own beds, and it was really, really quite an interesting. But you could only stay there unless you were on your honeymoon. So how did we get from that to Mount Airy to the Caesars Resorts? And how did well, we I think Caesars and uh, really uh, with the heart-shaped bathtub and and the involvement there, and and, uh, and the honeymoon. See, here's the thing: as you know, our business problem is midweek business. I mean, that's a year-round situation. And a honeymoon couple usually gets married on a Saturday, stays one night where they got married, and checks into a resort on Sunday. So we had Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, maybe Thursday, of a couple on their honeymoon. Well, that was perfect. Then you still had Friday, Saturday, Sunday for, for other couples or other business. So it was a great piece of business because uh, it, was, it, it fit exactly into our business problem, which was midweek business. And that's why it became such a lucrative problem, a lucrative issue. But you know, the market changed because when I first started with this, a lot of honeymoon couples had never flown anywhere. 
you know, and we got a lot of business from New York and New Jersey. And, you know, today, instead of Niagara Falls or the Pocono Mountains or the Berkshires or whatever, people are having their honeymoon in Hawaii or Maui or France. So it, the, the whole market, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily the decline of our uh, honeymoon places, although we still do some honeymoon business. It was the market changed, just like car industry and et cetera. So it was airline deregulation, it became cheaper airfare. And, and cheaper airfare, but it was really, you know, in those days when you got married, you probably never been with your spouse anywhere. You had never taken a trip with your, your mate. Today, most of the couples have already lived together for a while or have taken trips together for sure. Well, that never was the case then. So we had a more uh, unexperienced couple in those days than we do today. So the, um, how did that decline kind of end up to where we are today, being right in Kalahari, for instance? How did that happen? Well, it was interesting how, you know, for one thing, we have to, we, we have to, there's a fact here. The honeymoon business never was our biggest business. Family business was always our biggest business because we had many more family places than we did honeymoon places. But the fact that it was so unique, I mean, there was no place in the, in the United States that had eight or nine resorts, which only you could be there and stay on your honeymoon. That was very, very unique in, in the whole United States. And we, we used to have like 12 pages of ads, full page ads, and brides and modern brides. So we dominated the market. And at one point in time, we were the number, number one honeymoon destination in America. So when that started declining, everybody said, well, what are we gonna do now? And the couple's business was becoming very strong. But we went through a period of reshaping our image and our area because actually at the decline of the honeymoon business, it became a negative because the, our resorts weren't keeping up with the times and they became 80, 90 resorts in the 2000s. And so it, it, it was becoming a little bit passe or whatever you want to call it. It wasn't up to date. So anyway, and then, so we started promoting the outdoors more, you know, more outdoor skiing and all those things. And then what happened one day, I got a call from an individual from Great Wolf. And Great Wolf uh, said, we want to build an indoor water park here in the resort, here in the Pocono Mountains. And I said, well, that's great, but what is that? <laughs> you know, I don't know what that is. So they said, well, we have, about, we have one in, in Wisconsin Dells. And I was familiar with Wisconsin. So I called my counterpart in Wisconsin Dells. I said, hey, they're a great company, great people, et cetera. So we took them around, and they found this location, and they built it. And I helped open it with uh, Regis Philbin at that time. And Great Wolf really opened the door because it wasn't long after that that Kalahari was here. They were, they were like McDonald's and Burger King. They wanted to be near each other. And then Kalahari was looking for, they had located another property uh, uh, over in the eastern Poconos. And then they made a deal here. And of course, at the same time, or near the same time, Cableback started building their indoor water park, and so did Split Rock. So we had the four of them evolving at the same time, around the same time. 
So, uh, so one thing, because because you brought skiing with Camelback, right? Is it true that they helped develop the equipment to make snow? Is that right? Or no? The, the real, the real, you know, here's a, a fact: snowmaking was really not invented. The first time snow was made in the Pocono Mountains was at Big Boulder Ski Area, and the, the New York Times did a story on that. It's still there. I have the the clipping that one of the individuals there was working on it, working on it, one of the people who worked there, and he was trying to find a way to make artificial snow that would work and stay on the slopes, and he did. So it really started at Big Boulder Ski Area, I mean, on the first commercial uh, ski area. And then it evolved. Obviously, without snowmaking, you know, we wouldn't have the ski industry that we have. Camelback really was the largest and, and wasn't connected with any resort. See, Big Boulder was connected with Split Rock and... Shawnee with uh, you know Shawnee Resort and so it, it, it Camelback was out there was the place for everybody and it was big and, and that's why it was so important and I don't know if you would agree with this but uh, to me Camelback seems to be the epitome of our entrepreneurs you know you have the ski area you have the indoor water park so a family could come in they could snowboard they could ski they could wrap they could do the tube raft uh, snow tubing and then do the water park. Yeah, it's a perfect combination. It is. It is. Uh, and I think I think what you see here, even at Kalahari and others, there, there's such a demand for something that you could do year round and, and and not have to worry about the weather. And you know, we we always had, you know, a variety of issues marketing the area. Number one, the seasonality of it, and number two, the weather. Well, these places are weatherproof. I mean, you could come here in November, February, March. And you still have that experience that you have an indoor water park, which is really a, one big attraction. Beautiful, too. But I have to ask about you. Um, so you were one of the first, if not the first, president and CEO of the Visitors Bureau, correct? No, there was a... Uh, John Calhoun was there before me, and then John moved on to something else. And I was running a, a little visitor's booth for Lake Walla Pawpack at the time. I had just come back from uh, the Air Force. I was in the United States Air Force, and I was in Korea and Japan uh, during the war, Korean War. And uh, when I came back, my fa my family owned a resort on Lake Wanapawpak, and they wanted me to work there. And I said, I don't think so. So anyway, I uh, they gave me this job, and then I they offered me the job at the bureau. There was only three of us there at that time at the bureau. And what year was that? Uh, 1968. 68. Which is 50 years ago. Yeah. 50 years ago this year. I was only 12 at the time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, so that's, that's really where I started, yeah. And you oversaw an incredible expansion and rebranding of the Poconos at that time. Yeah, you know, we... One thing I think that's interesting about our area, maybe not necessarily to a lot of people, is how we keep reinventing ourselves. I mean, the reinvention of our area from a, a rural area that most of the business, people came here hunting and fishing, and then people who came here with the resorts and the families, and then the honeymoon business, and now the, the indoor water park business and the ski business, and the hiking, biking, trailing, whatever outdoor activity can can it, it's almost deja vu to go back to that but that's a reinvention of our brand and i think it you know when you look at other resort areas and i'm not being negative but 
the Catskills and some of the others, they never try to reinvent themselves. They kind of got stuck in their own brand, their old brand. And I think the Bureau was the impetus for having that rebranding. And I think under your leadership and what's going on today, it's, it's become more apparent that that's the, the, the way to go. And I think but that we have a, we have a great legacy. I mean, with people like you and, and some of the entrepreneurs you named, you know, you have Mount Airy. Mount Airy was one I, I always um, remember growing up in the region. Now, Mount Airy to me is just such an icon brand, but it says what the Poconos actually is, right? I mean, and uh, look at it today. It was, but you know, again, we went, we, you know, none of this was all, you know, sweet and roses. We, at one point in time, Mount Airy was boarded up. Plywood on it, believe it or not. It had gone belly up. So consequently, it was, it was again the, the, the reinventing of, of Mount Airy into the fine casino that it is now. Uh, by the De Naples family that really made that happen because we lost some places and the places we lost see that the thing that people really don't understand is we were basically a summer resort area and the resorts that were here had a hard time converting to a full-time year-round air uh, resort because their facilities were built to only be used for to it for the summer so it was only till the advent of skiing Camelback and others that we started becoming really a year-round area. I give the ski areas the most credit for us being, uh, all the credit for us becoming a four-season four, four season area. Because without them, what are you gonna do here in the winter time anyway, you know? And there's great selection. Now with the indoor water park, now we have that, so. But there's just great selection of ski areas too. They're just, they're amazing. From every level, right. Right, and um, when you look at a Camelback, a Shawnee, a blue, blue mountain, big, uh, big Great Bear, Big Bear. Big Boulder and Jack Frost. Big Boulder and Jack Frost, I mean, you just have, such a variety here and um, right. you know the other things to do too in the winter so I always say to people that we are a four season destination we absolutely are well you know a lot of people they say well you know we don't ski but you know if you promote an area as a ski area you get people who come anyway right at least you got they know something's going on they may go snow tubing they may go snowboarding they may just go cross-country skiing they may do something else and the fact that it's, that, that it's promoted as a winter wonderland, as we are, we like to promote it that way, uh, I think that's the, uh, that's the market that we're trying to achieve. So what, starting here in 1968, looking to where we're at now in 2018-19, could you have seen, foreseen that growth? How, how, do you, well, how do you feel about that? I think, you know, I... You have to remember that none of this started with, there was no subsidies in our business. Nobody got any grants, nobody got any tax abatement. Nobody, there was individuals, entrepreneurs who used their own money and went to financial institutions. Many of them were just families who started from nothing. Woodlock and others, I mean, they started on a, a boarding house, the Summit, uh, Fernwood, all of that. So when, when, you, when you saw that, an entrepreneurial spirit we had here and the fact that these people were ready to reinvest in their businesses that was really the the strength of the area if we were all chain hotels with you know I don't, I don't want to knock the chain hotels but I mean you know that didn't really have on-site ownership we never would have survived some of the time period we went through gas crises we went through all you know gas uh, rationing we went through hurricanes and 
and droughts and gypsy moths and all kinds of things in an era. But, you know, the, the fact that we all had an investment, that these people had their family investment in the area, we, I always knew that, that would be, something would work out because it, it was too much there, there. Ask you to look in your crystal ball. What do you think we'll be looking at 50 years from now? Wow. Well, I won't be here, Krista. <laughs> you might be. You might, might be. <laughs> uh, I don't know. You know, here's the thing about all this new stuff. And as an old-timer, I could say this. You know, it's all great to have the Internet and, you know, uh, the marketing campaigns you have today and, the, and all of the new innovation. But the number one factor you still have to have is taking care of the customer. And today it's even more important than others. And with things like TripAdvisor and all those other things. I mean, so what, what I see is an evolution of more and better service to the consumer. Because without that, this is making all these trappings, indoor, outdoor water parks, ski areas, it isn't going to work. It's taking care of the customer and making sure they come back. The best customer you could ever have is a repeat customer. And if I see 50 years from now, I would like to see more of a concentration on finding a way to keep the customers to continue to through through generations. <clears throat> you know, I used to always say that we had a lot of people came here for camp. We had a lot of boys and girls camp. So they came to camp here. Then they came on their honeymoon. Then they came on it with their families. Then they came back as seniors. So if we can keep that evolution of a area that can transcend generations, then we have a secret of success. So, you know, everybody, uh, I think it very affectionately, I know, calls you Mr. Pocono, and they should. Uh, and you've been with us, shepherding us through all these things that, that really have, um, have evolved over time. And I think with you, if you hadn't been doing that, I think the Poconos would be very, very different right now. I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm not an immodest person. I'm not, I'm not. But, you know, you have to realize again, it, I took my strength from the owners, from the people and their families that were here. Because once they accepted the premise that it's, what's good for the Pocono Mountains is good for them and their businesses and their families, it was an easy job. Because... You had their, you had their, they had your back all the time. And I learned a lot from those people. They were great entrepreneurs. And they still are. Yes, I mean, they, they epitomized the, entrepre the entrepreneurial spirit of America. And you know, I'm not sure I could really add to that, but all that I could really say, Bob, is thanks so much for being here. I wanted to get you on the first episode of, of Pocono Well, I may not be around for the second episode. <laughs> no, we don't want that, we don't want that. <laughs> But uh, I'm Chris Barrett here along with Bob Bugasini, and I want to thank you for watching Pocono Perspective. Well, here we are at Mocha Origins, just north of Honesdale in the beautiful Pocono Mountains. Mocha Origins has been around for five years now, creating bean-to-bar chocolate that is ethically sourced from countries in Africa. And I'm joined by Jeff Abella with Mocha Origins, his chocolatier, Beth, and Kate, one of our team members who really couldn't turn down this assignment. I wanted to thank everybody for joining us here on Pocono Mountains Podcast. We have a lot to sample here and a lot to talk about. So again, thank you for joining us here on Pocono Mountains Podcast.
Absolutely. We'd rather be nowhere else. This is it. This yeah. is your home turf. You guys make chocolate here year-round. You've been here for about five years. Describe to me, this is not just the kind of chocolate that you would get at the grocery checkout line necessarily. This is really high quality chocolate sourced responsibly from locations in Africa, right? That's right, yeah. So the whole um, kind of premise is to use chocolate and coffee as a way to directly trade with our farmers overseas that produce these beans and use really chocolate and coffee as a vehicle to impact their lives. And so what we do is make bean to bar chocolate where we literally go from the raw cocoa bean, we do the processing, the shelling, the stone grinding, the aging, the tempering and wrapping all here so that people can see it, but people can also get a sense of the handwork that happens 5,000 miles away in Africa where we source these beans. And so this is something that you can find in locations throughout the country. You've got bars of chocolate, you've got drinking chocolate, you've got chocolate truffles made specially by your wife. Right? That's right, yeah, definitely <laughs> give her a shout out. Uh, we'll try them in a minute, they're awesome. phenomenal. But yeah, you can find us in about uh, 200 plus locations across the United States. Um, yeah, Whole Foods and Mom's Organic Markets and places like that. It's using that moment in front of customers to tell a story about how ethical sourced beans can make better tasting chocolate and can have an effect on farmers' lives. That's fantastic. Jeff, I've, tr I've tried this before. I covet this type of stuff. It's amazing. It just comes right here in the Pocono Mountains out to the world. And, and we want to jump right in here because you've laid out such a great array of different chocolates for us. Please run us through, you and Beth, what we should be trying and what we should uh, know about all this specialty chocolate. It's not really, there's not really a wrong place to start. Beth, uh, where <laughs> should we jump in? All right, well, we can start with Uganda. Okay. okay. Lately, we've been roasting it so that there's also like very juicy notes to it. Mm. Wow. Really good. That is so good. And so we use that, we have some bars that are dark bars and some that are inclusion bars, but we pair the, the profile of each bean from each region with the inclusions that we add to it. When people come to our factory, um, we're open seven days a week and we right. do a lot of tours and tastings. First thing, we, we try to hit you with chocolate within a few minutes of you walking in the door. Right. And one thing we you like to walk you through. Right yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's true, yeah, even before you come in, right? Yeah. Smells um, wonderful. Yeah. We try to have you taste you know, the different countries chocolate. So when you taste the Ugandan like we just did, and now we'll try the Tanzania and, and Ghana, same recipe, generally the same processing steps and, and formulas, but it's the, the characteristic of the bean that tastes different and it results in a very dramatically different tasting chocolate. So Tanzania's so, next? Let's try Tanzania, yeah. Okay, that one's up. right here. And take Kate, a look at the yourself. color. Can I get the big piece Absolutely, again? you got the big piece again. I picked you a good piece I that last did. time around. Interesting to note the red kind of tint to it compared to the Uganda, which had a little bit more of a darker shade. Who am I? I think of the tans as kind of like the diva of the chocolates. <laughs> I, can, I can sense that in the flavor in my, in my like, taste buds. <laughs> yes, it really hits you up top. And if it's not roasted just right, it can be almost sour. Yeah. But when no. you get it just right, it's just no. like there's this whole like roller coaster of flavor that goes on as it melts in your mouth, which makes it really exciting. And then we pair that with cherries. So it brings out even more of that juicy Flavor. I could see that tanginess being yeah. good in it. And you know what, it does have like a tiny bit of a bite. So it's it's that like spicy, tangy, but it's still smooth. That's what I love about all your chocolate because I'm not a huge dark chocolate fan because of too much bite, but all of it is still so smooth. Yeah, yeah, yeah reduced amazing. bitters um, happen when we roast it in a certain way. And then the stone grinding, it really reduces a lot of those volatile, bitter flavors. Well, let's flavor, uh, sample another flavor. Let's Which is this it. one down the, down this the line? This is Ghana. And, and I'll say this much too, it's not 
just the experience of sampling their chocolate. It's it's the overall like creative aspect that you put into your packaging and to just your messaging and everything else. I think that it's really resonating with people who who utilize um, these types of things to like share with people, to give as gifts and to, um, you know, have in their home. Yeah, well, we, it's Beth, the team. We have an amazing team. Uh, Joe, who's behind me, uh, you know, making hundreds of pounds of delicious chocolate actually illustrates all the artwork on our packaging. Oh, wow. Um, Prashant, who does our social media, um, also does the graphic design. So it's fun working with such a dynamic team that have many different, um, you know, strengths and qualities to, to jump in and be creative in that process. Yeah. And you're also passionate about what yes, you do, are. which really makes it more of like an experience <laughs> when you come here. All right, so we've got three chocolates down, but this next one I've been craving just a little bit, especially over the summer months here. And Kate, you've been uh, eyeing really? this up as well. Yeah. Well, we saved you one. This is a limited batch bar. It's our summer s'mores bar. Oh, um, we yeah. bring this out just for subscribers of our Mocha Box and special guests, of course, that come into our factory. So you're too kind. Let's jump in. All right. Feel free. Help yourself oh man look at that you've got the vegan marshmallow on that the graham cracker and of course the chocolate so chocolate. Beth hand pours these and then tops with go ahead tell us your it's your your tip your tricks graham cracker and then the vegan marshmallows which are a little knacky because you want to make sure that every bite has both it's important yeah but mainly in the tempering room we do sometimes just start putting things on the different kinds of chocolate which is so much fun because you end up with these really kind of exciting ideas that then we can develop into something that could really be a mocha box bar. And every month we have for subscribers a brand new bar that's each one is super different. One day we were making our espresso bars, which is a chocolate bar with coffee beans ground into it. And we had a bunch of toffee because we also make toffee almonds. So we said, what, what would happen if we just put toffee on top of the espresso bar and it was banging. So oh. now that's going to be one of our mocha box bars coming up. The coffee but it's just toffee. super fun. Yeah. yeah. It's like a creative process too, like sampling things. I mean, yeah. It, yeah, a lot of trial and error. You've hit the yeah. nail on the yeah. head right there. Yeah. <laughs> when you first bite into it and then when you get down further, you really get that kick of the rich milk chocolate, yeah. which is a nice surprise. The first part of the bite is perfect too. Yeah. Good yeah, it really does taste like a s'more. Oh, yeah. yeah. We call this guilt-free gluttony because we take single origin cocoa beans make really high quality dark chocolate as the base and then we add the fun stuff so you know um, ultimately it's still very good high quality and, and nutritious uh, because of the dark nature of the cacao right. so um, yeah that's one of our funner bars that's a really fun one now you have the bars but you also have drinks that you cultivate with a lot of your ingredients which ones do you have on display here you have for it. That's right. So we are actually going to jump into our lattes. And this is what we signed up for today, Kate. Totally. So We're taking good. one for the team, Kate. So we now have a factory cafe. So you can come in and enjoy this right on site with us. We roast it about yeah, 10 feet from where you're drinking it. And a little backstory on our coffee. Mocha founded in actually seven years ago in Cameroon as a coffee co cooperative project. And so coffee has been a part of our kind of origin story for a long time. It's a really um, important part of our business as far as the relationship we have with farmers there. That evolved into cocoa, and then we launched our factory five years ago here. Um, be but before we were making chocolate 
we were working with coffee farmers in the mountainous region of northwest Cameroon in West Africa. So yeah, right. cheers to seven years. Uh, cheers to Moco there. Origins. <laughs> Oh, that is delightful. It really is. And you have people here who just welcome you as soon as you walk in the door. So whether you're coming for a tour, whether you're coming to take something home with you, you've got the actual coffee and, and uh, lattes here made fresh for you. And then you can go out on hiking trails here at Mocha and Himalayan Institute and really enjoy the nature outside here, uh, the four walls of the barn and the factory, the whole Pocono Mountains. It's a whole experience. Yeah, you can come out here, you know, we're in the, nested right in the beautiful Poconos at the campus of the Himalayan Institute. And then you come in and not just can you enjoy the cafe, but as you're, you know, eating the chocolate, you can see it being stone ground or the roaster preparing the beans. So, you know, it brings your awareness to the process unlike you typically would when you walk into a, a normal cafe or chocolate shop and that awakens the really the understanding of the supply chain and the farmer's relationship in that ultimately and then how much hand care the team puts into making high quality product. And yeah, we hope you taste the difference. It so. tastes really good. It's amazing. One it's last thing. Okay. We gotta jump into those truffles. Oh, um, okay. My wife Chelsea <laughs> works really hard and they are so delectable. I'm okay Thanks. with that. And you can only get them here at the factory, right? That's right, yep. Okay. Yeah, so help yourself. Oh, thank We're you. all I'll yeah, take this dig one. in. Kate, do you want one here? Yep. I, I, should I? No? Okay, all right. <laughs> and this is, this is definitely a hand care situation because Chelsea's been hand rolling each one of the truffles. She makes the ganache by hand, mixes it all together. She melts down chocolate that we, you know, are using for other things and then we'll add different stuff to it to make each one have a special flavor that goes with it. You can see from the toppings. Yeah, yeah. these aren't like launching off of a um, conveyor belt. These are, yeah, hand, hand. Now uh, what created. are we eating today? Which yeah. one? Yeah, so that is a dark chocolate ganache coated in single origin dark chocolate and topped with cocoa nibs. So those crunchy bits on top, those are the insides of the cocoa beans. Wow. Um, so you'll get kind of that, you know, bitter dark chocolate burst of flavor really balanced with the creamy ganache that's inside. I love all the different textures and everything here. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah texture's a fun one to play with, especially on the, the bar side. Yeah. All right, I'm gonna sample this texture right now. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Like everything, it's so good and so original. Walk, no, don't walk, run to, to the nearest place that sources Mocha Origins. And especially this place here at the Himalayan Institute campus, you guys have this factory, you guys are open how many days a week? Seven. Seven days yep. a week. Yep, nine to four. Come on in, make sure you uh, sample everything that you can sample and then take some home for the family. Especially because Christmas is around the corner. Especially here. We, yeah. we do Christmas early because we have to pour so many of these bars. These are our only two-layer bars right now that have both the white chocolate and yeah. the dark chocolate. And then organic peppermint candy on the back. So each one of these, it's a little more labor-intensive. So we start a little bit early so we can make sure that we make enough. But um, they're really, they're the, the stars Thank of the you, season. Jeff. So we're going to start blasting the Christmas music here in about two weeks. Yeah, Christmas does start early, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So... This is our limited the holidays batch on the way. Yep. You guys would have a limited amount of these. Yeah. So people should get here and get them before they're out. 
Yeah, we only do a few thousand. We have them on pre-order, so you have to order them in advance. And, oh, wow. Uh, yeah. um, you know, they're very labor-intensive. It's a, it's a single chocolate bar that has to be poured twice. We pour a white layer of chocolate and then a dark chocolate layer and then hand top it with candy cane. All, all organic and kosher certified. And uh, yeah, made with a lot incredible. of love. It and really a great is. gift for the holidays. Yeah, it yeah, it is. That you can feel good about because of, you know, the, the labor and everything yeah. that went into it that was humane and good and all around. A lot of Yuletide glee. <laughs> a lot of it, right? In just one bite. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. The chocolatier here, Jeff, one of the head honchos here uh, of Mocha Origins, running this show for five years, hopefully many more years after this. Kate, thanks for joining us for this uh, podcast here on Pocono Mountains Podcast, as well as on uh, Pocono Mountains Magazine. We are going to bid you adieu because we have a lot more work to do here to tackle all this chocolate. You're not done yet. We're not yeah. finished. All right. Thanks for watching, everybody, and listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. The Mocha origin story is a great one for any time of the year and such an important one about small businesses with a global reach planted right here in the Poconos. And how about the depth of knowledge Mr. Yu has for this region? Chris and Bob both are shining examples of great leadership for a major part of what makes the Poconos the Poconos. The Pennsylvania Department of Conservation and Natural Resources has a program called Leave No Trace. Here in the Pocono Mountains, we're asking all of our guests to honor that program. Plan ahead and prepare. Travel in smaller groups when possible. Travel and camp on existing sites and pathways. Dispose of your waste properly. Leave what you find. Minimize campfire impacts. And respect wildlife. We're back. Thanks for listening to Pocono Mountains Podcast. I'm Jim Hamill. One more Best of 2021 segment for you now with Brianna Strunk. She stopped to talk with through hikers on their journey along the Appalachian Trail back in the warmer months of this year. It's a month-long commitment that many have made over the years and each year. Many of those through hikers stop over in Delaware Water Gap, where they're treated with great hospitality in that community. It's kind of what the Poconos symbolizes each year for anyone who visits, whether it be by car, train, or even plane, or your own two feet. During the course of any year, start to finish, it's a journey. And we hope you enjoy your time here in the Pocono Mountains. Enjoy this look back on episode 25, Hiking in the Poconos. so many different hiking trails throughout the Pocono Mountains, including here in Delaware Water Gap. The Appalachian Trail is a great place to spend the day, but for others, the journey is much longer. Three months ago, Heather O'Connell took a leap of faith. She left her stable teaching job in Spain to hit the Appalachian Trail. I love getting to see nature on foot. It's in human time, so you get to kind of take it all in slowly. The trail runs from Georgia to Maine and typically takes hikers around six months to complete. 
Delaware Water Gap is about a halfway point, and that's where we met Heather. It is so close to the trail that it's convenient. Sometimes you have to hitchhike into towns or walk further, and this one you could just walk to easily. Presbyterian Church of the Mountain in Delaware Water Gap provides a complimentary hostel for hikers to sleep, shower, and do laundry of sorts. If they're, if they're out there, they're late. So, <laughs> In the summer, the church also offers a free hiker's dinner every Thursday. It's our mission of hospitality, and uh, we're donation only. So a lot of centers you have to pay before you get in the door and things like that. Um, we don't do that. We caught up with Mike Stone at the hostel as he hitched a ride to stock up on supplies. Mike appreciates that Delaware Water Gap is hiker friendly and during his time here is patronizing local businesses like Village Farmer and Bakery. It's literally 0.2 miles off the trail, so it doesn't get much easier. The Appalachian Trail hosts a variety of people. Through hikers travel the entire trail while section hikers take on a portion. Then there's folks like DeAndre Bryant spending just a few hours on the trail for his first hike ever. A lot of people, a lot of friends of mine, clients of mine, if they go hiking and uh, I'll, I'll, I just hear the stories and it's good to actually experience it. The trail presents both mental and physical challenges as through hikers tackle ever changing weather, terrains and elevations. But each new view on the horizon brings a new view on life. It's just knowing that you can get anything put in front of you and you're just going to push through any rainy day, any big mountain, any river crossing. You just push through it every day and it's just it's a really rewarding thing. Back at the hostel, Heather is well rested and ready to continue her journey. In a few months, she'll have to find a new job. But this experience is teaching the teacher to take one step at a time. I have worked hard my whole life and I just feel like this is a dream and a once in a lifetime opportunity that I won't regret and I can always find another job. So whether you're a Heather or a DeAndre, experiencing the trail is a must. For Pocono Television Network, I'm Brianna Strunk. Let's listen to a longer discussion between Brianna and one of those through hikers. Hi, I'm Brianna Strunk with the Pocono Television Network. We are sitting down with Mike Stone from Sarasota, Florida. He is a through hiker on the Appalachian Trail and he took a stop in Delaware Water Gap in the beautiful Pocono Mountains. So we wanted to chat a little bit with him about his experience. You are hiking the entire Appalachian Trail. For people who don't know about the trail, can you tell me a little bit about it? Uh, yeah, it goes from Springer Mountain, Georgia to Mount Katahdin in Maine. It's uh, this year, it's 2,193 miles. Uh, I say this year because it changes year to year for trail maintenance and fire closures, whatever. But uh, yeah, that's basically it. It takes most people between five and six months and uh, it's a long, long, hard road. And how many stops are there along the way? Or for a typical hiker, how many times do you stop? Um, it just depends on the hiker. I mean, you can stop every two to three days or you can stop every week. It just, it depends. I, I planned on stopping around 25 times. 
And here in Delaware Water Gap, this is your first time in the Gap, and uh, this is kind of a halfway point. A little more, yeah. What do you think of the town so far? Uh, I've only been here for a couple hours, but it's really nice. The, uh, the center that they have here for us is really nice. It's really welcoming for hikers. They're doing a free dinner tonight, so that's nice. Um, it's convenient. There's a pizza place. It's literally 0.2 miles off the trail, so it doesn't get much easier. Yeah, that, so the hostel, you don't have to pay. A donation is accepted. The free yep. dinner. Delaware Water Gap is really a hiker-friendly town. Do For you, sure. Do you see that a lot in other towns off the trails? Uh, oh yeah, a lot, of, a lot of the towns are friendly. Um, way more towns are friendly than not. Um, and everybody you go to just wants to help out for the most part. There's people waiting at roads, giving you drinks or food. I mean, it's a very, very friendly atmosphere. And do you have to be really fit and really in shape to do this journey? No, not at all. I mean, it, it may make it a little easier in the beginning if you are, but I mean, honestly, there's all types of people out here that are out here doing whatever they can. Some people go five miles a day, some people go 25 miles a day. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. As long as you have the means to get out here, it's, it's definitely doable. And some people hike in groups, some people meet others and hike together, but you like to go out there alone. Yeah, I... Uh, I just like to do my own thing. I like to go as many miles as I want in a day. I like to stop at a view for as long as I want, which you can do in a group too, but I just, I don't have to worry about the, the group dynamic thing. I just like to, to do my own thing. And what's the terrain like? Does it really vary? Well, Pennsylvania is called Rocksylvania because it is extremely rocky. There's endless number of rocks out there and it's, it's pretty tough terrain. Um, the entire trail is, there's a lot of elevation gain and loss, so you're going, you're pretty much going up and down, you know, thousand feet at least every day, up and down, but it's, it's pretty tough. And we were saying before the interview, you met someone who lost 50 pounds on yes. their journey, you lost 15, so yeah. it really, it does take a lot of strength and test oh, yeah. your abilities, really. Oh yeah, for sure. So this journey takes about five months. So for you personally, like, did you have to quit a job? Did you just have some downtime? Um, I'm, I'm self-employed, me and my brother do construction. So I just didn't schedule work for this time. Um, but yeah, most people will either quit a job or a leave of absence of some sort. Uh, the first time I did another through hike a couple years ago for that one, I did quit my job. But uh, this time I've worked it a little better so I can take time off. What is it about this experience that keeps you coming out? Um, it's just knowing that you can get anything put in front of you and you're just going to push through any rainy day, any big mountain, any river crossing, you just push through it every day and it's just, it's a really rewarding thing. I mean, you get to see all these beautiful places along the East Coast and it's, it's just a rewarding thing to do. And to be able to step outside of everyday life and do this, it's great really gives you a different perspective. Absolutely, absolutely. And it, it just takes, realize what you have back home too. I mean, the convenience of a shower and a laundry. I mean, we're out here washing our clothes in buckets. So it, it's nice to, to put things in perspective a little bit, so. And last question for you, the hostel here, the free dinner. How thankful are you for that? It, it, it's amazing. I, I saw, I heard two days ago that this dinner was coming and I've hiked 45 miles since I heard that, so. It was very inspirational to see that there was a free dinner here tonight. It made me hike a little harder. Love it. Anything else you want to say or mention? 
Uh, if you ever want to go out and hike or you don't think you can, make sure you go out and try to do it because it's, it's definitely worth it. Awesome. From the people to the peaks of the mountains, this year has had a little bit of everything. And we're grateful you listened in on Pocono Mountains Podcast. Thanks for listening and Happy New Year. Please remember to subscribe to Pocono Mountains Podcast anywhere podcasts are available. Come visit us in the Pocono Mountains. Plan your trip for 2022 right now. <laughs>